The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, beginning with the fourth verse. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we pray for our nation. Most of all, we pray for truth. Turn us away from falsehood and lies. Have us embrace truth and be free. We repent, heal us, unite us, forgive us, grant us peace and reconciliation. We thank you for our system of government, for checks and balances. Increase our capacity to love, to serve, and to seek justice not according to our standards, but to yours. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon text for today is indeed the Gospel lesson, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. It is the well-known story of Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. Uh, We celebrate that today on Baptism of Our Lord Sunday. We also recall and celebrate our own baptisms. My sermon title for this morning is The Power of a Voice That Blesses. The Power of a Voice That that blesses. We have undergone a rather jarring transition textually and liturgically since the last time we gathered for worship. Indeed, we do every year in the first several days of January. We have just emerged from the brief 12-day season of Christmas when we celebrate the Incarnation, the Nativity, the birth of the Christ child, When we last saw him, Jesus was only days old, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, 
serenaded by shepherds and livestock, and briefly presented in the temple, acknowledged by the prophets Simeon and Anna. January 6th, just this past Wednesday, is always the day of Epiphany, marked by the Magi's or wise men's visit to the toddler Jesus, led from the east by Bethlehem's star, bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It is believed by most that Jesus would most likely have been around the age of two at the time of their visit. It would have taken two years to travel at foot speed from Persia, their likely point of origin, and of course upon hearing of the birth of this rival king, King Herod slaughters all infants in Bethlehem two years old and under. And so now today, the first Sunday after Epiphany, we always celebrate the baptism of our Lord, which commemorates the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So in the span of two weeks, a mere 14 days, Jesus has gone in our scriptural readings and church year observances from a newborn to a toddler to a 30-year-old man. My, how time flies. If that transition seems jarring, it's because the biblical record itself is. Aside from a very brief story of the 12-year-old Jesus lost in Jerusalem, in, John's, in Luke's gospel rather, there is nothing at all recorded about him from the age of infancy to 30. Many scholars refer to these simply as the missing years of Jesus or alternatively as the hidden years or the lost years. Incidentally, only Matthew and Luke have infancy accounts of Jesus at all. Mark and John simply begin their accounts with Jesus as a fully grown, middle-aged adult. And so the first time we encounter Jesus, here in Mark, the first written of the four Gospels, he is a 30-year-old man on the banks of the River Jordan, patiently waiting his turn to be baptized by his bizarre, eccentric, and quirky cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. John's popularity, or at least the popularity of what John is doing, is intriguing to me. Verse 4 says he is offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 5 follows, and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. That's intriguing to me because there already exists in Jerusalem a place a locale, a method, and a system for the forgiveness of sins. Namely, the temple. The temple was the house of God, the residence of God, where worship and adoration occurred. It was there that sacrifices were offered around the clock, morning, noon, and night, animal sacrifices, and others such as grain, wine, or incense, for example, to appease, propitiate, and satisfy God and to atone for the sins of the people. So it seems as if, in this text, a large segment of the populace is making the decision to forsake one for the sake of the other. They are fleeing the city for the water, Jerusalem for the Jordan River, a grand, elaborate system for a quirky one-man dog and pony show, something more public but removed for something more personal and intimate, a sacrifice of meat grain or something external for the sacrifice of self, a death and a burial and an immersion of an old sinful self for the raising of a new clean slate self. It seems as if Jerusalem's temple 
and sacrificial offerings are no longer sufficient to a people yearning for something deeper, something more real, more profound, more transformative. They seem to be clamoring for a new and a fresh and a clean start in life accomplished by the primordial element of water rather than the offering of something external. It would be as if you came in here today no longer being satisfied with punching your Sunday morning worship time clock. Cha-ching. Going through all the motions and making what you consider to be a sizable financial offering. But instead, you yearned for a deeper level of repentance, a more substantial experience of renewal, a real transformation, a real reconciliation with the Almighty God that can only be affected by water, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God to constantly kill the old you and just as constantly raise up a new you each and every time you enter these unlikely banks of the Jordan. Toward that end, there is a theme that runs through our assigned assembly of readings today, a theme that could be said to be paramount, and that is the voice of the Lord. In the Bible's opening words from our first lesson in Genesis this morning, you have God's Spirit moving over the face of the waters, then God speaks, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good. So when God's Spirit moves over water, and God speaks, His voice creates, and what it creates is good. In our psalm today, Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is mentioned seven different times. It is over the waters, it is powerful, it is full of majesty, it breaks the cedars, it flashes forth flames of fire, it shakes the wilderness, and it causes the oak trees to whirl. Then the psalmist says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. So whether water is nourishing or destructive, life-giving or life-threatening, God sits over it. And when God speaks, it is thunderous, majestic, awe-inspiring, and nature itself bows in obedience such that all humanity speaks in the psalm too, but they only manage one word, one all-response. The end of verse 9, glory. This narrative before us this morning is rightly viewed as Jesus' call narrative, at least in His human flesh. He is called by the voice of His Father in heaven. Once again, there is water below, heaven above. The Spirit of the Lord is hovering overhead and God speaks. What God says is not only sweet, nice, comforting, and reassuring. It is also scriptural. What I mean by that is the first half, you are my son, the beloved, is almost a direct quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It is a messianic psalm where God claims His Messiah. The second half, with you I am well pleased, is inspired by Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. My chosen in whom my soul delights. That is the opening verse of Isaiah's four different suffering servant songs. 
where God chooses His servant, who though He pleases God, is also chosen to suffer for the sake of others, a fact which becomes clearer the longer the songs continue. So it is somewhat instructive and enlightening as we encounter Jesus' baptism and call this morning and inevitably reflect on our own baptism and call to realize that the voice which calls and claims Jesus and calls and is the same voice which calls and claims us and the voice which chooses Him and delights in Him and finds Him worthy also chooses Him to suffer. That sounds and seems paradoxical to us. God chooses us to bless us, to prosper us, to give us good physical health and have great family relationships and acquire wealth and possessions. God doesn't choose us to suffer. But in the biblical record, God chose the servant in Isaiah to suffer. Jesus' baptismal waters here lead very soon to Calvary's cross and a blood-stained body. And when God chooses His most famous messenger evangelist of all, the Apostle Paul, Acts 9 has God say, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name all over the world before kings and high places, and I myself will show Him how much He must suffer for the sake of my name. And later in life, when Paul is given a thorn in the flesh, which he describes as a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. Three times Paul asked God to remove it, but each time God says no. My grace is sufficient for you, God tells Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. And yet we spend all our time avoiding weakness, avoiding suffering, not knowing that at the same time we are avoiding the call of God and the power of God on our lives. Sometimes, my friends, God calls us and suffering and weakness are a part of that call. And when we studiously avoid and sidestep those realities and discomforts, we limit our own call, we limit our own usage by God in this world. If God's power is made perfect in weakness, Many of us have no power because we refuse to be weak. We equate power with strength. And we utterly forget that God's power was never more on display for reconciling this world back to Himself than when His own Son, His own flesh and blood, died, abandoned and alone, nailed to a piece of wood and left to suffocate. That is weakness. And that is power. So perhaps your own suffering and weakness, though not that extreme, are intimately bound up with your call and your baptism. And God is using precisely those things to achieve His will for others in your sphere of influence. When I look at this baptismal text, I see the power of blessing. And I see it twofold. Number one, God the Father claims Jesus. You are my beloved son. You are my son. And number two, with you, I am well pleased. 
seems kind of silly and gratuitous, doesn't it? Why does Jesus need to know that? Doesn't he already know it? Isn't he aware that he has already, up to this point, lived an obedient and sinless life? Is this blessing, this approval, somehow instrumental to his remaining life and ministry? Or is it for the benefit of onlookers, the crowd, or us, the readers? Or is God simply wasting his divine breath? What if God had never said it? What if Jesus had emerged, empowered, and equipped from the water? What if he had seen the heavens torn apart and the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove, but never heard the voice? Would all the rest have been sufficient? Would the rest not have been enough? I believe there is something significant and special about the power of a voice that blesses. Apart from affirming his messianic identity to others and to onlookers, I believe myself that Jesus benefited from these words, benefited from this blessing from his Father. You are my Son. I love you. And with you, I am well pleased. I believe that for the remainder of his ministry, Jesus clung to these words and clung to this blessing. I believe it sustained him during 40 days of trial, testing, and temptation by Satan out in the wilderness. I believe it encouraged him when he faced opposition and rejection by Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Samaria, and Gerasene. I believe it enabled him to undergo persecution at the hands of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the elders. I believe when he was tortured, scourged, and nailed to a cross, what got him through were these precise 11 words uttered three years earlier. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I believe that when he hung high on Calvary's cross, on Golgotha's sight, as the memory of Jordan's cool, refreshing waters faded into a fog of pain, and the closest thing to water was a sponge sopped with sour vinegar and the blood water mix which flowed from his pierced side. I believe that these words had to have been undiluted in his mind, as fixed as the North Star in order to run that final lap. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And on this day, when we recall and celebrate the baptism of our Lord, we also recall and celebrate our own. Romans 6 reminds us that through our baptism, we have been united with Christ in a death like His, and we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like His. And so, as you continue along your life's journey, rejoicing in God's goodness, questioning His ways, and wrestling with His call on your life, I pray that you remember that the heavenly voice that claimed Jesus is the same heavenly voice that claims you. And the same God that blessed and approved of Jesus blesses and approves of you. God sees you going through and he declares you are my child. I love you and you please me. God sees you enduring right now what you should not have to endure and he says you are mine. I approve of you. The power of a voice that blesses 
is unmatchable and it cannot be denied. Whatever this world tells you, whatever a parent tells you, whatever a sibling or a spouse tells you, whatever a child or a grandchild tells you, whatever a boss or a boyfriend or a girlfriend tells you, whatever a friend or colleague or enemy tells you, God says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And with you, with you, with you, with you, with you, I am well pleased. The power of a voice that blesses.